Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the word of God. How many of you guys are totally confused by what we just read? Uh, <clears throat> uh, we're, we're coming to the end of our series, and uh, if, you, if you've been with us for, gosh, uh, for a good amount of time, we walked through the entire Bible uh, in terms of a, 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 as a survey in learning and understanding what these stories that we heard, these books that we heard of, what they really mean. And uh, fittingly, we get to this last book of the Bible. This is Revelation. Revelation uh, was written to people at the end of the first century. And they didn't uh, face plagues so much as they faced tremendous amounts of persecution. And John, who is the author, he offers a living hope for all of us here, even today, to handle suffering. And it worked. 
because the word of God has lasted. The church has continued to grow. If you look at even uh, secular scholars and what they wrote, they talk about the impossibility. They cannot explain how the church could have grown so rapidly out of the first century, especially because its claims were so deeply unfathomable and, uh, and unbelievable, especially in that day. And so Revelation is a remarkable book. It's the only one of its kind in the entire Bible, and it's going to teach us four things that's going to help us, that are going to help us to handle our suffering. Number one, it gives us meaning in our work. Number two, it's going to give us a living hope in our suffering. Number three, it's going to give us an end. It's going to show us the end to all of our longings. And lastly, it's going to teach us how to get it, how to get all these things. One, meaning in our work. Two, a living hope in our suffering. Three, the end to all of our deepest longings. And four, how to get all these things. Uh, We're going to go quickly through these things as quick as possible. And, um, And if you have any questions, feel free to come up. At any point in time, talk to one of the leaders, talk to me. Uh, I'd be happy to talk more about it with you. One, Revelation 21 teaches us meaning, what it means to have meaning in our work. Verses 1 to 2, the author says this. He says, I saw heaven, the city of God, coming down out of heaven. Why is that important to us? It's because I always thought, at least, that heaven was about people rising up and escaping to heaven. That's what I thought. But the text here clearly says that heaven is a city that comes down and reshapes the earth. Now think about this. If, we, if, if heaven, if Christianity, if the Bible is all about us escaping the earth, then that means this present world has no meaning. It's just kind of like this in-between type of place. That means life itself really doesn't have a lot of meaning. That means our work, what we do here, has no real significance. But if heaven is a city that comes down, renewing the earth, reshaping the earth, then we have mission today. We have a purpose today. On one hand, we know that heaven is coming down. That means that there's hope. That means God himself, we don't go, we don't escape up to God. God actually comes down and renews the earth. But on the other hand, it's not a garden that comes down, right? It's not a suburb that comes down. In fact, most ancient literature begins with a garden, takes us to a fall, and ends back in the restoration of the garden. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is it starts in a garden, right, Genesis. It takes us through the fall. You see all the brokenness through the Bible. And then it ends in a city. It's a city of God that comes down. What do you have in a city? Tremendous meaning here. In a city, you have every tribe, every tongue. Every color is represented. You don't have that in the garden. Uh, the city is the central place for what? It's a central place for building, central place for knowledge, for scholars. It's a central place for finance, or for those of you who are finance majors, finance, right? Uh, commerce, the arts, music, theater. It's a central place for culture, the central place for society. What does that mean? On one hand, what that means is if you... You look at the brokenness in the world and you say, wow, I long for something more. Some of us, it could be very simple. I'll break it very practical. I don't fit in anywhere, you say. I have never found that one group of people where I feel like I fit in. The author, John, is saying that world is coming. That is coming. On the other hand, it means that right now your work has meaning because you're in that work. And you have that hope of the gospel. And you're the one that's doing that work. And that means a redeemed creature, not just a created being, but a redeemed creature is doing the very same work that otherwise a non-redeemed creature would be doing. A redeemed person is doing the work. That means that integrity is being restored, honesty is being restored, kindness is being restored. The person that's doing the work is going to be freer from envy, free from jealousy. The person doing that work is going to work hard, but they're not going to be working to step all over other people just to advance themselves. They're not going to live as selfishly. Is that you? Does that describe you in the workplace? Does that shape you in the workplace? Is that you? My professor in seminary um, once asked me, you know, called me out right in the middle of the class. And I might have shared this story before, but he asked me, uh, because I'm a bivocational minister, and he said, why, are you, why did God place you in that office? 
You know, and I said, well, I mean, the answer is obvious. When I step out of my office, I counted at that moment in time 13 different ethnic groups sat around me as we were working. So rather than me having to always go on global missions, I could just go in my office and do missions right there, and I've touched 13 countries because all those people have ties back to their countries. If they can be shaped by the gospel, everybody in those 13 countries can be shaped by the gospel. And I felt pretty good about my answer. And he said, well, that's like, that's like 10% the answer. And I was like, what? He said, you're only like a little bit right. He said, and I'll never forget this, even in the most mundane things that you do in your office, that's a redeemed person who's been called by God to do it. That means that you're working on spreadsheets, you're attending those meetings, meetings that sometimes you have no business being in. You're like, why am I here? This isn't the pointless meetings, right? Uh, You can redeem the workplace just by you being there. That's your body sitting there in that office, in that meeting. That's you working on that spreadsheet. And so just by being excellent at what you do, by working hard at what you do, by doing your job well, with integrity, with honor, with, with, uh, with excellence, you're reflecting your creator. We are image bearers of God. You've been created in God's likeness, and so you are his image bearer. And that means that in heaven there are builders and scholars and scientists and merchants and artists and musicians. That's you right now. You get to do that now. You get to do that as a redeemed person, not so that you can step over people to get ahead, but because just by being there and being a redeemed and renewed person, on one hand, you could actually do positive work. What I used to think in the office, I just help rich people get richer. I just help rich people, right, develop new ways to get rich. And I found no, I'm not like healing people, and I'm not helping the poor, you can find rational ways or, you know, ways to rationalize what you do, right? Anybody can do that. But at the end of the day, I'm making rich people get richer. And yet, God has called you to work on that spreadsheet, to copy that data, to transfer. To, God has taught you to write that code, right? God is leading you to help those people. God is teaching you. And the thing is, as mundane as that job can be, you are reflecting what, what did God do when he created the world? Did he sit there and say, oh, this is so mundane. I just got to get through this to really show myself. Is that what he did? No. You know what he did? Day one, he said, let there be light. And there was day and there was night. And, he said, and it was good. Day two, he created the sky and the waters. And it was good. And every day, day three and day four and day five and day six, and down day seven, he looked back at everything he had built That's the Sabbath. That's what the meaning of the Sabbath is. He was able to look back on everything he built, everything he did, and there was no insecurity. There was no, oh, man, I didn't do enough. There wasn't any, you know, I need to work harder to get ahead. There was none of that. He looked at everything he built, and he said, wow, it was very good. That's the meaning of the Sabbath, to be able to look back on what you do, whether you are a student or a scholar, whether you have one degree or you're working on your third degree, it doesn't matter. You are doing that redeemable work because a redeem, you are a redeemed creature. God has placed you there and you can be satisfied. You're free from envy, free from jealousy, free from comparing yourself with others. You are reflecting the likeness of the creator God himself. You are bearing his image, imitating God as your creator. Now, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that right now? We don't do that because uh, we don't see the reward. Oftentimes we're looking for a reward. We don't see what's coming, what's coming down the pike. We just see hardship. We just see com- competition. And so we envy and we're jealous and we're angry and we desire approval constantly from, the, from our superiors and we're selfish and so we lack integrity and we're constantly anxious and we're constantly afraid of other people and what they think of us and we're constantly complacent and so we're constantly oscillating between complacency, right, and jealousy. We're constantly oscillating between uh, being complacent and lazy You know, on one hand, when you're home, and being active and driven and anxious and pushing ahead when you're at work. Do you see that? Remember, there is a very real dignity in your work because you are called there and God has put you there. And every day you can look at what you've done. At the end of the day, 
you know, when you are tempted to work more, especially at night, when you're tempted to work more, you can look at what you've done and you, and you can say, it is good. It is blessed. Can you do that? Can you remember that, you're, that before you build something visible or tangible in the office, you are actually building something eternal? There is your meaning. There's meaning in your work. Now, the second point <clears throat> is uh, that there's hope in our suffering. And in verse 4, John reminds us that he, God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. At the cross of Jesus, at his death, there was death. There was mourning. There was crying. There was pain. There was tremendous suffering. But because of the resurrection... God himself, Jesus himself was rewoven, and he was glorified. He was healed. And uh, on one hand, he bore scars. In fact, the disciples didn't even recognize him except by his scars. But on the other hand, he had a renewed body. He was glorified. Mary, uh, a close friend of Jesus, couldn't even recognize Jesus, right? So uh, verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear. One day, because of the resurrection, we will be rewoven. We will be perfected. We will be healed completely. And the world itself will be rewoven and perfected and healed. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear. That means there's still going to be tears. You're still going to cry. But one day, they will be gone. God himself will personally wipe them away. You know what that means right now? You can pray your tears. We have tears. You don't have to hold it in. You can pray your tears. There's someone who actually hears and will wipe them away. One day, you can, you can, right now, you can pray your fears. Right now, you can pray your anger. Right now, you can pray through your pain because God is storing these things up. And one day, they will, in consummate nature, he will wipe them all away. Verse 7 says, because Jesus defeated the death. That means that you can trust him because there's victory, he says. And you will inherit that victory. That's verse 7. You just receive it. There's nothing you do. There's nothing you can do. Before Jesus died, before he rose again from the dead, there was loss. There was death and mourning and crying and pain. But then he rose again. And that old order of tears and mourning and pain and death, that old order passed away. He defeated death by his death. The Latin phrase for that is lex taliones. You take the enemy's greatest weapon and you use that greatest weapon to kill the enemy. So David takes Goliath's sword, right? David takes Goliath's sword to chop off Goliath's own head. In the same way, Jesus, using Satan's greatest weapon, death, on the cross, he dies. And through that death, through that brokenness and that suffering, he wipes away death once and for all. He wipes away mourning once and for all. And that's not just a promise. That's reality. That's reality. That's what he's saying. And so what we're saying here, because in verse 8 he says, well, if you're cowardly or unbelieving or vile, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, they're all gone. All of them get wiped away too. They're all gone. What does that mean? Right now, you can enjoy the safety and the peace and the security of being found in Jesus right now. That's something to give thanks for. It's a dangerous world otherwise. This world is dangerous. College students, you know, you, you, uh, you're in a bubble, right? I mean, Temple University will tell you and remind you that it's dangerous, right? University of Pennsylvania will remind you that it's dangerous. But the thing is, you're in a bubble. It's safe. If something happens to you, it's surprising. It's shocking. But when you step outside of college into the real world, when you get through that bubble, and most of us here are outside of that bubble. You know that the world is a tremendously unsafe place. The Bible's saying right here, right now, in this dangerous world, in this chaotic world, you can have certainty and peace and security. That's an amazing thing. What this passage is teaching us is that heaven comes down into our reality. God comes down. And not only is he one who is a, is a, he's a humble king because he comes down to us, right? But he's a healing king. He's a redeeming king. He's a renewing king. He makes all things new. He says, behold, I make all, I'm making all things new. You see that in, in this passage, and you see that also in the, in the uh, word of encouragement. It's very important. Why? Because in the beginning, you go to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. That's pretty much how you interpret Revelation. It's the only book of its kind. 
uh, all these images tie to something in the Old Testament that you have to go back and re-look at. It's a very complicated text in that sense. But this takes us all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, you see the unrestricted presence of God. God is present and he's walking in the cool of the day. You see that in Genesis chapter 1. You see him, him creating, and his, his presence is just everywhere as he's building and creating. In Genesis 2 and 3, he's walking around with Adam. And in Genesis 1, he takes this void, and he transforms this void. There was nothingness, and he takes it, and he transforms it, and he makes it into creation. And so he integrates the universe. He's building and creating and putting everything together, light, night, Day, sky, water, land, creation, all the animals, human beings. When God is at the center, there's creation. There's creative power. There's light. There's illumination. There's, there's life. There's integration. He starts to weave things together. There's the environment was never meant to be broken. It was meant to work together, be together. When God is in at the center, that when God is at the center, that's what you see. When God is pushed out of the center, in the, out of the center of our lives, what happens? This integrated design starts to break. Because that which God built to be at the center, when he's pushed out of the center, everything falls out of orbit. And what happens as a result? Integration turns into disintegration. There's death. You take this uh, fine-tuned car, Nowadays, uh, cars are getting more and more fine-tuned. Uh, you take this fine-tuned car, and when you, you get, buy a brand-new car, you turn on the engine. The engine is very, very consistent. It just hums, right? And you open up the hood, and you look at this beautiful engine, and, and everything is just working orderly. But give it about 60,000 miles. Give it about 100,000 miles. And then you open up and stop pulling, putting oil in it. Stop uh, taking care of it. Take something like sin, like a wrench, and put it into the middle of that engine. What happens? It's still going to run. It's still going to work. But it's never going to work the way it wasn't designed to work. It's going to break up. And if you continue that way, what happens? Eventually, everything just dies. That's sin introduced into this beautiful, integrated work of God. That's the old order. John says that the old order of things has passed away. We're living with that wrench in our engine. We're living with that brokenness in our DNA. And what John is saying is that in Jesus, when you place your faith in Christ, that he has died so that you could live, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and you have a new life. And so what Jesus does is basically he buys this broken down house. That is us, that is you. He takes this broken world he claims it all as his own. He says, I'm going to buy it once. I'm going to pay it in full. I'm not going to put it on layaway. I'm not going to put it, I'm not going to mortgage it and pay it month to month. He says, I'm going to pay it in full. And so he dies on the cross. He pays for it in full. And when he pays for it in full, he says, now I'm going to live in that person. I'm going to live in that person's heart. Well, don't you want to wait till it's kind of fixed up a little bit? He says, no. And what he does is he goes in with a broom. He goes in with the, with the tools. And he starts cleaning you out room by room. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. He's sanctifying you. He's healing you. He's renewing you. Sometimes it's painful. You know, surgery is painful. But he's healing you room by room, little by little. We are designed to reflect the beauty and the glory of God. But when we chose to be our own masters, what happened was that the disintegration set in, the brokenness is set in. And this original design of God, the original order that was not designed to have pain or crying or mourning or death, now there's death. Now there's mourning and crying and pain. And John here promises with the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Christ, one day all those things will be wiped away. In verse 5, you see the throne. What is a throne? A throne is where the king sits. And uh, it's where the king sits and judges. What the kings used to do in the ancient thrones, they would sit and people would come with cases and they would judge and they would rule. And he says, there's a throne where the king is. But in verse 5, he says, the king sits there. He not only judges, he not only rules, but he says, I'm also making all things new. He's a healing king. He's a renewing king. So he takes these lives that he rules and judges, and he fixes them little by little. 
and he's doing that work in all of you. He's fixing every one of you by entering into your lives. And he doesn't do it in comfort. He doesn't do it always in peace. Now he's a gracious king. Sometimes he will bring comfort. Sometimes he's going to bring peace. Sometimes he's going to bring security. But a lot of times what he does is there's brokenness. And your brokenness is creating other brokenness. Your brokenness is creating brokenness that you can't see that other people see. Your brokenness is creating brokenness that other people project tomorrow's brokenness with. And Jesus, in his wisdom, and God, in his love, and his grace, knowing all this from the beginning, has moved into your life. And through your brokenness, there's some crying right now. He wipes it away. And he heals you first and he starts, he will wipe it away altogether. One day there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. That's an amazing thing. There's renewal. There's healing. Now, up until uh, verse 5, you see future tense. Uh, He will dwell with us. They will be his people. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. All future tense, right? But then, in verse 5, he says, I am making all things new. That means he's doing that now. One day, there will be no more pain. But he's making it new now. That's something that's active today. That's an active work of our king today. It's an amazing thing. That means that to the degree you submit yourself to this king, to the degree that you obey this king, to the degree that you come under this king, you will find healing. To the degree that you trust this, to the degree that you let this shape you, you will experience that healing. To the degree that you submit to this king, there will be newness in your life. To the degree that you trust this king, there will be a rebirth in your life. Do you experience that? Do you experience that? Are you experiencing that right now? It doesn't mean that all your pain is resolved like that. Remember, we're not escaping to heaven, right? Heaven is coming down as a city, and it's reshaping you. That's what's happening. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain. There's a not yet. There's an already. I am making. There's an already. There's a not yet. One day there will be no more pain, no more death altogether. God is at work right now in your suffering right now. God is dwelling with you right now. He already does, but one day, there's going to be a fullness of that dwelling with you. God sees you. You, were, you see him face-to-face right now, but one day, there will be a fullness of that face-to-face, and he will wipe away. He will come to you, and his hands will be on you, and he will wipe away every tear. Some of you have suffered immensely. I mean, I, you can't ever diminish the amount of pain that a group of people like this can suffer at one time to know that God will one day personally wipe away your tears. That's a fullness of being with him. He says, we're going to have new bodies. He says, uh, there will be sonship. God will be ours. We will be his. That's family language in those ancient times. I will be yours. You will be mine. We will be his. He will be ours. That's family language. That's going to give you courage. That's going to give you power. That's going to give you security. There will be that tomorrow. You have it today. You can sense that consciousness now. You can live out that consciousness to the degree that it will shape you today. Are you doing that? One day, you know, all wrongdoing will be put down. Can you imagine? uh, We're going to get into the third point. Can you imagine you without sin? You will live a life. Just that. Forget about the new bodies. Forget about the new, uh, you know, the healed minds and all that stuff. One day, just imagine you and you can't sin. You, You can't sin. Imagine that right? One day, all wrongdoing will be done away with. One day, all the unjust will be put down. They'll be brought to justice. Not a single sin will be let go. Every sin will be accounted for. Everyone that's ever hurt you will be brought to justice. You feel like, oh, I I feel such injustice in my life because people who deserve to be put down didn't get put down. One day, even they will be brought to account. So you don't have to pursue that so much on your end. Right? Because one day, God will wipe away your tears and bring those people to justice. Let that shape you. That's going to help you to endure hardship. It helped you. And, you know, sometimes you're in the office and you feel like you're being fed to the wolves. You, be, you feel like you're being fed to the lions. These people 
who read this letter, they were fed to lions. And this gave them hope. And it will give you hope. You see that? that hope, because the hope is not re- rooted in like, like optimism and pessimism. It's rooted in truth. And that can be applied to you. Because Jesus suffered the ultimate death, death, even death, will not destroy you anymore. You can say, you can get me, you can hurt me, you can kill me, you can destroy me, you can ruin my reputation, you can take away all the things I love. It will only remake me and it will complete me one day. That's our hope in suffering. The third thing this passage teaches us, it gives us an end to all the things that we long for. So we read so far that heaven comes down, rehabs the world, And so all the images that you see in Revelation 22, you know, there's a tree, there's a river. They were all part of the the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see the tree and you see the river. Only this time, when you see it again, you're introduced to these things again, they're all rehabbed. They're all done, redone. They're all new again. And so, you know, the river is a healing river. The tree is a healing tree. You see that? So John uses phrases throughout Revelation 21. He uses phrases like like. And as, heaven is as a bride beautifully dressed. Heaven is like a very precious jewel. One metaphor is not enough to capture heaven. On one hand, what does that tell you? Those are similes. Those are metaphors and similes. And so on one hand, what that means is God wants you. What's the purpose of a simile? A simile allows you to take something, compare it to something else, so that in a way that your imagination is woken up. And so what that means is that God wants you to look at heaven and think and reflect about heaven in a way where you can imagine what it would be like tomorrow. But on the other hand, God uses the imagery and the metaphors to show us that heaven is incomparable to these things. That's why he uses so many metaphors. That's why it sometimes is so confusing. But really what he's saying, if you were to take Revelation 21 and just explain it in one fell swoop, what basically what he's saying is heaven is unbelievably, unimaginably great, filled with glory. It's, it shows that heaven is infinitely beyond anything that you are able to imagine. Heaven is like a wedding. It's like transparent gold. It's like seeing God's face. It's like earth. In earth, you have weddings. On earth, you have gold. It's like earth, infinitely greater than earth. How do you apply that? I'm going to give you a couple ways to apply this right now. Growing up, I was told that Heaven is a place where you worship God forever. As a kid, children like to run around, children like to play. The last thing children like to do when you tell them, you know, Uncle Donnie, what's heaven like? Well, heaven is like this place where you will just worship God forever. You know, that sounds awful right? That sounds terrible. It's not, and that's not the picture that the author is trying to paint for us here. What do you see here? In heaven, um, the foundations, the things that our reader today uh, read, uh, a lot of those things are, it's hard to pronounce, right? Carnelian, chrysoprase, chrysolite, all these things. You see things on earth, amethyst, gold, pearls, you know, the 12 gates made of 12 pearls, right? Each made of a single pearl. The foundations of heaven are things that you find on earth, precious things that you find on earth. So John wants us to take earthly things, but notice that each gate is made of a single pearl. He wants us to take things on earth and then heighten them, intensify them, magnify them, broaden them to a degree that you can't imagine until it blows your mind. That's what he's asking us to do. I'm going to give you some examples. Verse 16, the length of the city is 12,000 stadia, in, right? And it's as long as it is high as it is wide. Now, most, most of you are Asians here, right? What, if you are to say, tell you that the length equals the width equals the height, that is a cube, right? Someone said square. That is not square. It is a cube, okay? You got to go. It is a cube, all right? What else in the Bible? <laughs> what else in the Bible is a cube? The Holy of Holies was a cube. So, in other words, what the author is saying is that the entire city, heaven, is a holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. In the ancient days, only the high priest could enter in. 
But now what does that mean? In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. In heaven, every one of us will be kings and priests. We will be princes and priests in heaven. In heaven, everyone's a king. We're all royalty. We're all priests. We all share in the inheritance. That means you have a place. You have a name. You are a son. But also you are priests. And that means that heaven is a cosmic holy of holies where everyone can enter in, where God is dwelling with them. Before only the high priest could enter, now you have unmediated access to God for all time. You are continually in his presence. And it shines with the glory of God. That means everything is reflecting the, God, the glory of God. That means everything you do, everything you say, everything you think will shine with the glory of God. That includes your work. You know, in heaven, we're all going to work. Work is not a product of sin. Work existed before sin existed. Work existed before sin came into the world. Look at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Right? God gave Adam particular commands and ordinances to work and to cultivate the land and to name the animals. He says, you are going to now rule. He was working. But that was before sin ever came into the world. Sin came in and broke our work. Now we're slaving. Right? That was the curse. Genesis chapter 3, now by the sweat of your brow you will labor. So there was always work. In heaven you will be working. You'll be doing things with your time. But the thing is you will, you'll be working without envy without greed, without sin. And so it'll be a glorious work. You'll be satisfied in your work. You're going to be reflecting God in his glory with your work. Everything you do and say will honor God, will glorify God. That's what it means. Everything you do is worship. Now, another example, your body is going to be made new. Does that mean we're all going to have the same body? No, we're not going to have the same body. God is a creator, unique. We'll be remade. We'll have new bodies. What you have to do is you have to take the notion of a body on earth, but you're not going to have the same body. It's going to be transformed to a degree, heightened and intensified and broadened in a way that you cannot fathom. So today, everyone here has physical challenges. Tomorrow, see, you know, one of my favorite preachers, I'm from Philadelphia here. He says, one day, he says, one day he wants to fly. And the thing is, C.S. Lewis says, in heaven, you cannot want wrong things, right? Uh, you're going to be made beautiful with beautiful souls. You're going to be glorified. C.S. Lewis says that you're, right now you only have five senses, but you will, be to, you will be able to experience new dimensions of your body. Perhaps one day you will have a thousand senses. It's amazing. You're going to discover the glory of your new self. You're going to experience new aspects of your character because it's going to be renewed character. You're going to experience aspects of your body that you never had before, right? Glorified, intensified that you never had before in ways that you can't fathom. It's going to be you. It's going to be distinctly you, but it's going to be a new you, a glorified you. Imagine you without sin, without idolatry, without fears, without anxiety, Imagine you without addictions in your life, without selfishness, without sickness. In your work, there'll be no sick days. Imagine you uh, without sadness, without anger, without hate. It's an amazing thing, right? Uh, Last example. I heard this from um, one of my favorite preachers uh, who passed away not too long ago. Um, He says, you know, when a child comes up to you, I, I I run a camp for most of my ministry growing up. So you get questions like this all the time. Imagine a child comes up to you and says, will there be ice cream in heaven? Will there be ice cream in heaven? If you say yes, you're wondering, am I theologically correct? If you say no, it's going to make earth for that moment seem greater than heaven, more desirable than heaven. So how do you answer that question? Uh, And and basically, this passage explains it, verses 17 to 21 You see things like these gates that were made of pearls. Each gate was a single pearl. First of all, imagine the size of that pearl, right? Uh, Imagine the size of the oyster that made that pearl, right? Take 
a biblical view of heaven. Uh, take earth, intensify it, broaden it, heighten it to a degree that you can't fathom. And so when a child comes to you and asks you, will there be ice cream in heaven? The theologically correct answer is what? Yes. And it will taste better, so good that you would not be able to explain or even imagine it here on earth. A famous Baptist preacher said, in heaven there will be a Baskin-Robbins with 31,000 flavors, right? Um, when you worry, what are you doing? What do you do when you worry? You're taking fear and you're, and you're taking a fear and you're imagining things with that fear and you're heightening that fear, you're heightening that imagination to a degree that, that blows your mind and that's what creates anxiety, right? But the Bible calls us to courage. Courage is also about taking your imagination to a place that's rooted in truth. That's what gives you confidence. He says, the Bible says here, the author says, take truth and try to imagine that truth because it's real, it's rooted in reality and let that shape you. We're called to courage. What you worry about is never going to be as strong as reality. That's why it's so powerful because your imagination is taking hold of you, right? It's got you in like a headlock, right? That's what's happening. It's gripped your heart, gripped your soul. That's why we get worried. But Christian courage is rooted in reality. And so uh, this passage is showing us that your imagination is always here in this passage. Your imagination is always going to be an underestimation of the reality that is to come. No matter how much you imagine, it's always going to be an underestimation. But when you're afraid, you're overestimating your current state. You're taking a fear and you're overestimating your current reality and you're underestimating the ultimate reality. That's what you're doing. In heaven, there's going to be a light greater than any light. There's going to be a love greater than any lover. There's going to be a name. We're all working hard to build your name up. There's going to be a name that you inherit. You just receive it. That's going to be greater than any reputation you could build here on earth. It is the end to all your longings because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of everything you've ever wanted and hoped and wished for. That's why. You will never have to be afraid. You will never have to be despair. That's why God will wipe it all away. It's done away with, you see. That's going to take pressure off of your expectations in life. This is the only, friends, this is the only way that you'll ever be able to enjoy the things that you have here on earth, first of all, without ruining them, right, and without using them uh, to become a measure of your worth. This is the only way. You have to look to the hope of that new city, and you have to delight in that more than you delight in the things you have here on earth. That's the only thing that's going to help you from being jealous, keep you from being envious or covetous of other people. You have to take the ultimate reality. Heaven will come down and you receive it. Take the ultimate reality and delight in that reality more than the things that you delight here on earth. And it's given to you. Here you see, what do you see here in this passage? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I see the Lamb. Sacrificed himself. He paid the price for us to receive these things. The gospel is the only way that you can enjoy heaven because at the center of it is a relationship that's filled with delight. Jesus Christ delights in his people. He dwells with his people. He is ours. We are his. The earliest Christians, they delighted in that coming city. All the while they were being ripped apart, their bodies were being ripped apart. They said our souls are intact. You see that? How do you get it? I'm going to close with this. How do you get it? How do you delight in this sin? What's the prerequisite to being able to delight in that ultimate reality that is rooted in truth? John doesn't say, if you want it, you got to be good. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, well, if you want it, you better work for it. He doesn't say that, right? Nowhere does it say this. There's no language that says you need to earn it. You need to, you need to prove your worth to God. Verse 6, Jesus himself says this, to him who is thirsty, I will give. What that means is this, you just need to need it. Not everyone here thinks they need it. You just have to need it. Your pride says, I need to earn it. Your pride says, 
I have earned it. Actually, first of all, most of the things that made you successful, you did nothing to, you did not earn it. You did not earn your looks. You did not earn your intelligence. Those things were given to you. Even that is by grace. Do you see that? Read Malcolm Gladwell, uh, his, his New York Times bestseller, Outliers, right? Most of the things that make you successful in life, you didn't earn. It was given to you. In fact, 70% of it was pretty much given to you, right? So you received it anyway. It's the grace of God. To him who is thirsty, the gospel, the pride says you got to earn it. Pride says you got to work for it. Your pride says I have earned it. I have worked for it. I don't need this. The gospel says only those who are in need will receive it. What that means is you need to say, Lord, I want this glory in my life. I want the beauty of Jesus in my life. Not on the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of Jesus' goodness. Not on the basis of my merit, but on the basis of Jesus' merit. Not on the basis of my work, but on the basis of Jesus' finished work. It's greater than all other beauties, all other glories in my life. In John chapter 4, here's Jesus. He meets with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is destitute. She's lost. She's been sleeping around. She, she's looking for love and acceptance and uh, it's funny because she's thirsting, right? She's thirsting for water. And so she shows up to this well, and she wants intimacy and acceptance and love. And here's Jesus, a Jew, talking with the Samaritan woman. And Jesus ties her physical thirsting with this longing that she has for intimacy. And she says, yes, your thirst is a thirst for intimacy and love and acceptance. And you are worshiping it because you are doing everything you can. You have centered your whole life around this type of worship. It has become your sense of worth. And you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband, which means your life is degrading. It's spiraling downward. You've tried and tried and worked and done your own thing to get these things, and you don't even have these things. And it's shaping you, and it's ruining you. It's become your worship. By the way, the word worship is, is the root of the word worship comes from the Latin phrase, worth shape. It's holding something of so much worth that it shapes you. That's what worship means. The woman says, well, where is this ultimate place of worship? Is it here or is it there? And Jesus says, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, meaning that your worship is in your heart, your idolatry. It is inside. And one day, true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth, in the heart. That's what he says. I want you to come after me, he says. I want you to thirst after me, delight in me. I'm the only one who can give you the intimacy and the acceptance and the love that you're looking for. I'm the only one who can give you the intimacy and the love and the acceptance that you need. How do you get it? On the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. He's thirsting. He's longing. He wasn't just physically thirsty. He was longing for acceptance and love because he said, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. You've rejected me. You've abandoned me. I'm left for dead, and now I'm longing cosmically for the love of the Father, and I don't have it. And so he's on the cross. He's laboring, and he's groaning, and he's working. And the people are saying what? Get down. If you are who you say you are, get down from there. You, there's no meaning in your work. They're saying, get down, get down from there. He's crucified between two criminals. One criminal says, remember me. But the other one says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. There is no hope in your suffering. He says, I'm forsaken. I've been shut out by the God. I've been, that's why he was crucified outside of the city. He was shut out from the city of God. Why? As the wrath of God is just pouring out on him for, as a penalty for our sins. Jesus absorbs it all. Jesus takes it all. Jesus pays it all until he says it is finished. In other words, the work is done. The transaction is made. The penalty has been paid. He is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. Jesus Christ was kicked out of the city so that we can have the city. Jesus Christ was disowned so that we could be owned by God. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate suffering so that we can have hope in our suffering. Jesus Christ completed the, the perfect work so that our work could have meaning. Jesus Christ experienced disintegration. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he was disintegrated from the Father. And he said, I'm dying. I'm dead. 
Why? So that we could be reconciled with the Father. Friends, that's the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus did not come, the king did not come to, to, to uh, exact judgment on us. He came to bear the judgment for us, for you and me. And yet, do you know that he was actually reciting Psalm 22 on the cross? Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ends, Psalm 22 ends with a promise. It ends with proclamation. It ends with praise. Jesus is literally worshiping on the cross. He was delighting in the Father. As he was dying, he's saying, I trust in the Father. As he is crucified and dying, he's saying, I still delight in the Father. And he, the last phrase is, is the Hebrew phrase, for he has done it. If you translate that into Greek, it is, for he has finished it. It is finished. Even in his darkest moment, Jesus Christ still trusted and praised and delighted in the Father. He did that for us. You have to let that shape you. We don't oftentimes praise and delight in our suffering. Jesus Christ suffered for the ultimate suffering for us. That means that your suffering, not only, not only is there hope, there's actually meaning in your suffering. And you will bear those scars in heaven. Jesus Christ still has the scars. Thomas touched my hands and feet and sighed, but he was glorified. And God will work through your brokenness to glorify you. There are people here, I'm going to close. There are people here who they just need to get married. They just need a certain person in their life to make them feel okay. They just need money. They just need to make more money because they need a certain kind of security in their life. They just need to build their earthly city. Do you think that that's going to give you poise in life? Because if you lose your job, if you lose your family, if you lose your health, will you have poise if you're banking your life on these things? That's a fake, it's a, it's a counterfeit poise. Uh, if those things become a measure of your worth, you're going to be a slave. Your life is going to slowly corrode and disintegrate. You're going to be experiencing the detachment and disintegration of your soul. And your life is going to fall apart just at the risk of these things that you hold so close to you. Look to the gospel. Jesus didn't just come at the risk of his life. He came at the cost of his life. The pagans in the ancient times, by virtue of their worldview, they had no assurance of an afterlife. They weren't certain. They were no, there was no, con- the concept of an afterlife, uh, they weren't certain of that. But Christians, they knew that this world was a mere appetizer for the entree to come. This world was just a prelude to the glory that is to come. And they knew that as good as this life can be, it will be made new. All the brokenness will be gone. And so they were willing to give up their lives they were willing to sacrifice their lives for their faith for other people. And as a result, during the times of the great plagues, while thousands of people were leaving the big cities to get away, you know, because the plague, if you got in contact with someone, you would die. Thousands of people were leaving the cities. Christians were entering into the city and nursing these people who were sick. Somebody had to take care of them. And so as thousands of people were leaving the cities, Christians who should have lived were dying. So that people who probably should have died would live. They were merely reflecting the beauty of their Savior and and living as image bearers of God. Why? Because they found meaning in it. They found hope in it. They found an end to all their longings in Christ. And they knew that even if they died, they would be made complete. That's confidence. That's poison suffering. Do you have it? Let's pray.